Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning we'll be in verse 12, and we'll, Lord willing, go to the end of the chapter through verse 20. Uh, we just began this uh, study in the epistle of Timothy last week, and uh, I trust that it'll be a blessing again as we go through this book that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy near the end of his life. Paul had just finished warning about uh, those who argue over fables and endless genealogies that uh, really bring about more questions rather than building up others in the faith. And often that's, uh, that's the case in many churches. There are so many arguments going on about certain things that uh, we forget why we're here. Let's look back at the way he ends that warning in 1 Timothy uh, 1, at the, the first half of the chapter. He warned Timothy about those who swerved, remember we said that's missing the mark, and turned aside in vain jangling or empty, meaningless chatter. Uh, then he told why the law was given. It was for the lawless. And he lists all types of people who have sinned against God's law. Then he added a phrase at the end of verse 10, just in case he didn't mention a sin that someone was involved in specifically. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. And I mentioned that word sound is hygienic. It's a word we get our word hygienic from. It's healthy doctrine. And so whatever doesn't promote that sound, healthy doctrine and teaching of Scripture, then uh, we ought to uh, beware of that. Uh, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And that turn in verse 11 sets the theme for Paul's attitude toward what God had done in his life. There are two truths in verse 11 that will change the way that we live our lives. First of all, to realize that there is a glorious gospel of the blessed God. There is a good news. He is, as was just sung, strong in salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. So there's a glorious gospel. And second truth in that verse, it was committed to Paul's trust. God entrusted Paul to guard it and to give it out. At the end of the letter, Paul will tell Timothy to do the same thing. If you'll look ahead... I know we don't like to do that when you're reading a book. You want to know how it ends. But I think most of you read 1 Timothy anyway. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, what does he tell Timothy? Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. He just said in verse 11, chapter 1, my trust. And now he tells Timothy, thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. The title that we used last week was Guarding the Gospel. The title for the second half of chapter 1 will use Paul's change and charge. In verses 12 through 17, we'll see this dramatic change that took place in Paul's life once he was saved. And then in verses 18 through 20, we'll see the charge that Paul left for Timothy. So Paul's change and charge. First of all, Paul praised God for how his life was dramatically changed. Have you ever just stopped and thought through how God saved you? Reflected on what you were before you came to Christ and what took place when he saved you? That's a wonderful thing to think about and reflect on. We have a practice here at the church where someone wants to join Grace Baptist Church. They, they meet with the deacons and we love to hear their testimony of how they were saved. 
And everybody has a, a different means of getting to that point of salvation. Some are drawn to Christ by a parent who taught them the scriptures early on in life and prayed for them. Uh, some are saved because they faced some crisis in life, a terminal illness, a financial setback. The Lord got their attention, and he caused them to turn in faith to him. Some realize the need to be saved when they first hear the gospel. Some hear it for years and finally respond to it. But they're all different ways that we have come, but there are certain elements of salvation that are consistent in every testimony. And those truths chime out as loudly and clearly as the old church bell did when it called people to worship on Sunday morning. Salvation's testimony starts with the admission of our sinfulness, our helpless condition, our great need. There is that truth in every salvation experience that we realize, I cannot do anything of myself. I can't save myself. And then secondly, salvation's testimony is a demonstration of the power of the gospel. That Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's central to the gospel. That must be confessed or believed. And third, salvation's testimony also magnifies how great God is. That God was the one who planned this. That he's the one who worked in my heart for salvation. Listen to Paul's testimony. And as we do will relate to those same wonderful truths as we remember how God reached down and saved us. Note the way he uses the personal pronouns in verses 12 through 17. I and me. I think you'll count it nine times there. This is, is Paul's personal testimony of how God saved him, what he did in his life. He's just finished warning about the false teachers but instead of being proud and smug that he's not like any of them, he brings all the attention to Christ. He's filled with gratitude for what God has done. And in this passage, Paul starts by talking about his opportunity to be in ministry, and then he backs up and he thinks about his salvation. So, in verse 12, he's thankful to be able to serve Christ. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Notice the direction of his thanks. To whom was he thankful? To Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is the name of Messiah, God's chosen one. And then Jesus, the name of his saving work. And Lord, our King, our Master, our Ruler. Always remember to thank the right person. When it comes to salvation, you only can thank him. Don't be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who thanked God that he wasn't like other sinners and then told God how he fasted, how he tithed, how he did all this. Give your praise to God. The reason for Paul's thanks, Jesus was the one who, first of all, notice that word, enabled him for ministry. Again, when you're serving the Lord, don't think you're going to accomplish anything of eternal value in your own strength. You weren't saved in your own strength. You don't accomplish anything for God's glory in your own strength. It's all of him. He enables us. 
Notice also Jesus was the one who counted him faithful. Now, that word seems to indicate full of faith or having some kind of a belief in God. But Paul was, as Saul, before he became Paul, he was lost. He went about thinking he was doing the right thing. He really believed he was putting to stop the, the, those who, who thought uh, he thought that were God's enemies. He was stopping their evangelistic efforts. And so when he says, God counted me faithful, he wasn't saying that God saw him as a believer. He was saying, God saw that he was, he was trustworthy. And then third, Jesus was the one who appointed him to the ministry. So God enabled him. He counted him faithful. He appointed him for the ministry. A lot of times people today are, are appointed to ministry by their parents or by their peers. We need to make sure that God has called us to do his work. So gratitude. Are you thankful for what Jesus has done in your life? Any strength or any ability that you have to serve him is all the source is Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13... He admitted what he was before he met Christ, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul describes what he was before. Uh, he was a blasphemer. Literally, blasphemy is speaking evil of someone else or defaming someone else. Someone who hurts or injures the reputation of someone else by their evil speaking. And here, Paul blasphemed Jesus. Not only did he do that, he forced others to do the same. He wanted other people, even Christians, believers, to blaspheme the Lord. In Acts 26, 11, it says, And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. He wanted others to, to speak evil of, of God. Secondly, he was a persecutor, one who pursued others with the intent to do them harm. And he was injurious, one who violently abused others. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 7, and we'll see what Paul was doing when he was Saul, that zealous Pharisee. Book of Acts chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 57 toward the end of the chapter here. Uh, just to get a, a, a running start, the context here, Stephen was falsely accused and he was called before the council and the high priest and he gave his defense. And in that defense, he told them that they were the ones who betrayed and murdered the, the just one. And what happened to that? In verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Ever seen people do that? I don't want to hear. I'm going to stop my ears and I'm not going to hear anything you have to say. Okay? That's what they were doing to, to Stephen's sermon. Thankfully, I haven't had people do that in this, in this church ever, but uh, it happens. People, this was the response. Verse 58, and cast him out of the city, that is Stephen, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that's what the Bible talks about as a believer. When you die, it's sleeping here, waking up in glory. And then look down at uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll see more about what, what Saul was doing there. And Saul was consenting unto his death. The word consenting means agreeing. He was thinking, this is the right thing to do. We're doing what we should do. And also, he had a pleasure in being a part of it. So that is all wrapped up in that word consenting. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They were the ones who stayed in Jerusalem. And, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. The word havoc there means to soil through insults. Uh, we, we might think of it as mudslinging today. And then hailing, the word there is, is dragging. It's an interesting word. It's an old English word in our text. But the, the original word was used over in John 21, verse 8, where they, they dragged in a net full of fish. And then also in Acts 14, 19, when Paul was taken up dead from stoning, they dragged him out of the city. And, and so that's, that's the idea. He's dragging people to commit them into prison. This was Paul before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that's what he's writing to Timothy now. And he admits, I was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. Aren't you glad that salvation changes everything? Does the before and after picture in your life indicate any kind of a change, a dramatic change like Paul, or at least a change that's noticeable to you, to others, that you've turned from sin to Christ. Paul rejoiced now that he had obtained mercy. Here he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in, un in unbelief. And that, to me, that was almost like uh, I see an excuse here, that because of his unbelief. Now, the, the word because there is a conjunction, and it can be, and in other places, not, not only uh, something that is causative, because, but it's also something that can be used as demonstrative. And so it, it helps me to think, but I obtained mercy in that I did it ignorantly in unbelief. What, what Paul had done as Saul was terribly wrong. But he didn't know that he was persecuting God. He thought he was defending God. He was zealous for God. He thought he was persecuting those who were, who were false worshipers. And as we think about that, God, God judges willful sin differently than he does sins of ignorance. It's a concept that we don't hear much about, but I believe it's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it's for those who are unbelievers in both cases. In Numbers 15, 24 through 32, he makes a differentiation between those sins, ignorant sins, and those that, sins that are done willfully. And there's a sacrifice that the priest made for those who sinned in ignorance. And it says, but if a man sinned presumptuously, the word in the Old Testament that means presumptuously is he lifts up, it's a sin of the high hand. He lifts up his fist against God. 
It's a willful disobedience to what he knows God wants him to do. So that's the presumptuous sin. And for that person, it says, he despised the word of the Lord and his soul was to be cut off and his iniquity remain upon him. So there was this sins of ignorance that were covered by this special sacrifice, sins of presumption that were not covered. And then it's also true in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 12, Verse, uh, beginning in verse 47. Here there is, a, there is a master who leaves things in the hands of a steward of a household. And he says, this is what I expect you to do. And while he's away, if this steward just has a big party and he doesn't obey the master, then he's held accountable more so than those who didn't know what the master said. Let me read the verses. Luke 12, 47. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So he knew what the master wanted him to do. He didn't do it. But, verse 48, he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes, for unto whomsoever much is given shall much be required. So it seems like the more willful the rejection the more severe the punishment. I think the important thing to, to walk away from this verse is, is the realization that Paul says, I obtained mercy. Last week we looked at the greeting in verse 2, and we gave definitions of grace and mercy. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. Mercy is the immense forgiveness and kindness shown to a person in need. And so here Paul recognizes that God has shown him great kindness and he is in great need. In a few verses, uh, a few more verses in verse 16, we'll read that same thing. Paul will say it again. I obtained mercy. It was a, a recurring thought. In his, as he thought back about what God had done in his life, he just kept saying, I obtained mercy. He, he couldn't get over the wonder of God's mercy. I related a story uh, a few weeks ago on Wednesday night, a few months ago, um, about Gypsy Smith, Rodney Smith, who was a gypsy. He was born in 1860 in a tent in Epping Forest, six miles outside of London, England. He had no education. His family made a, a living selling baskets and tinware and clothespins. His father witnessed to him and he was saved when he was standing at the statue at, of John Bunyan in Bedford, and he gave his heart to the Lord. He was 16 years old. A few days later, he walked the aisle, and he made public his profession of his faith in Christ. And as he came, he heard someone whisper, oh, it's only a gypsy boy. He taught himself how to read, how to write, and God called him to preach. We can't go into all the details of his life. I hope you'll study the story of Gypsy Smith. But in a church in Brooklyn, New York, where he was invited to come, the 1,500-seat auditorium was packed every night, and 400 people turned their lives over to Jesus Christ, were saved. He came to America again in 1891, where in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, a 10,000-seat auditorium was filled Salvation Army had him preach several times for them. He saw at least 23,000 decisions for Christ. Later in his ministry, Vance Havner said to him, Gypsy, I 
heard you preach over 50 years ago, and it blessed my heart then, and I've never forgotten it. But again tonight, oh, my heart was warmed and thrilled. Gypsy, tell me, what's the secret? And he answered, sir, I have never lost the wonder of it all. Paul never got over the wonder of God's mercy. He attributed all the change in his life to the grace and mercy of God. He gave all the glory to the grace of God in in verses 14 through 16. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy. There he says it again. That in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. His grace, Paul says, is exceedingly abundant in faith, with faith and love. And Paul, as he often does, had to make up a word in this, in this text. This exceeding abundant. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. Of course, Paul made it up. Abundant. As Paul thinks of God's grace, it just wasn't a big enough word. And so he said it was hyperabundant. It was superabundant. He does the same thing when he describes God's grace in Romans 5, 20. 20. He, he makes up another word, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It's superabounded. It's greater. Is your sin great? God's grace abounds in a greater way. Paul's estimation of himself, he was chief of sinners. Brother Tim Schmig last week brought this out. The least of the apostles was something that he called himself in 1 Corinthians 15.9. That was in 56 AD when 1 Corinthians was written. So he was saying, I'm the least of 12. And then in Ephesians 3.8, that was written in 60 AD, uh, he says, I am less than the least of all saints. So you take all the other Christians that are in the world, and, I, and take the least of them, I'm less than that. But here, he says, I am chief of sinners. The word chief is protos, it's the first. I'm at the top of the list. Name all the sinners in the world. And I'm at the top of the list. I'm the worst that there is. Paul's life was now a pattern, verse 16. I can't think of uh, Paul without thinking of him as a tent maker. And as he uses this word pattern, I'm sure he was thinking of, of the patterns that he used to trace over to, to cut the animal skins to make these tents. And just like he would do that, he wanted his life to be a pattern for others. He wanted to be able to put his life down as a pattern. If you trace after this, you're going to turn out the way God wants you to turn out. Can you say that? Paul also says... In verse 16, me first. That's the same word, protos. He was at the top of the list of sinners. Now he wants to be at the top of the list of what God can do with a changed life. An example of what what God's grace can do. Paul ends his dialogue with a doxology in verse 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And when you think of your salvation testimony, you will have to praise God for it in similar words. Paul began with thanks. 
He ended with praise. And the content in between was this genuine admission of his godless life before salvation. But because of God's wonderful grace and mercy, he was rescued. He doesn't go into a lot of detail in glamorizing his past. I was in high school one time when I heard a man give his testimony about his life before salvation. He said he was a, he was a wicked criminal. And he went into detail about how he robbed banks. And during one robbery, it went bad, and he had a crowbar, and he was standing there waiting to hit the guard. And as he was telling that, I looked around at the rest of our student body. It was in the chapel, and they were all sitting on the edges of their seats. You know, this was fascinating. This is amazing. But at the end of his, his testimony, his message, I thought he gave more glory to his sin than he did to his salvation. A lot of times we call those bragamonies instead of testimonies. Paul gave glory to God. He made little of his sin. He, he admitted, I'm a sinner. I was injurious. I was blasphemous. And yet, God's mercy saved me. Let's look now quickly at Paul's challenge or charge to Timothy in verses 18 through 20. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So the charge was committed. It's the same military word that we saw back in verse 3 of chapter 1, when Paul told Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That was an order to be obeyed. And that charge, that command, was committed or placed alongside of Timothy. Timothy, these are your marching orders. The reason for the charge, according to the prophecies, Paul had made predictions about Timothy and his ministry. He ordained Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. He was ordained to the gospel ministry. Paul recognized that, and, and this was prophetic, um, as, as we see in this verse. So what's the nature of the charge? That's the reason for the charge, according to the prophecies, according to that ordination that you had. The nature of the charge, to war a good warfare, to fight the good fight. We are in a battle. Satan is the enemy. The souls of men weigh in the balance. And Satan would have them lost forever. And he's battling to keep those souls in his, in his hand, in his grasp. And so we are in a battle. But here the battle is good. It's called a good, or a good fight, a good warfare. The word good there is something that is, that is noble, that is excellent, that is virtuous, that is right. And so the battle that we are in is a noble battle. It's hard. But we must be confident that we've been called to it. And so he says, fight that good fight. War a good warfare. What's the strategy of this warfare? Holding faith and a good conscience. Paul told Timothy, back in verse 5, to have charity from a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. 
in chapter 3 and verse 9, we'll get to, but he'll repeat that importance of holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Faith here is what you believe. The conscience is what you do with what you believe. Con in science, with knowledge. In the Greek, it's soon ido, same thing, to, to have knowledge with something. And so you have your faith, but how does it affect your life? And so he's saying that both are important. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says strength in one is always combined with strength in the other. If you have a strong faith, a strong belief, it will affect your life. You'll be strong there. So also, failure in one is correlated with failure in another. And the commentary says theological error is often rooted in moral failure. So the way you live, you start explaining away what you believe. So these, both, both of these are important. Your faith and your conscience or how you work out that faith. Notice the seriousness of the charge. You have to avoid shipwreck. Some concerning faith. They, they walked away from their faith. They were shipwrecked. Here in the Great Lakes area, we're aware of the tremendous loss of cargo, of ships, and even lives that have been lost in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum says that there have been 6,000 ships and 30,000 lives lost. Other historians have larger numbers. But the word for shipwreck in the Bible is only found twice in the New Testament. Once, it's used literally, where Paul was thrice shipwrecked. Uh, here in 1 Timothy 1.19, it's used figuratively of those who abandon their faith and their lives are ruined. Paul uses these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, as examples. Hymenaeus taught the error that the resurrection had already come. 2 Timothy 2.17 and 18, you can read that. Alexander, they're not sure who it is here, but the word handed over, the words handed over to Satan, seems to indicate it's the same thing that took place in 1 Corinthians 5 when church discipline was applied. And probably means that these two were removed from the membership of the church into Satan's domain. Hopefully when that happens, a person recognizes their sin and will come back. But here, we see that their lives were shipwrecked. It's absolutely vital to fight the good fight of faith. We are in a real battle. It's a spiritual warfare. And we can only avoid the shipwreck if we confront error with God's truth and live consistently in our lives. So, what do we take away from this text? Number one, has there been a change in your life? Has it affected what you do, your ministry, your service for Christ? Maybe you've been saved and you just really haven't gotten into the battle. Or you were there at one time and you're, you're taking a break. You're actually, what the military says, AWOL, absent without leave. So maybe you need to get back in the fight. Uh, get back to serving Christ with your whole heart. There's a battle. There's a race to be run. And a battle to be won. Would you be true to him? Maybe... You're not even, your life hasn't changed because you haven't come to Christ in salvation. The invitation that we sing will be for any who need to make a decision for Christ. Let someone take the Bible, show you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die. 
Uh, we'd love to share that with you. And, 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 and for believers, if there's a decision you need to make and say, you know, I haven't been living the life I ought to live. I haven't been in the battle, and I need to be. And with God's help, I'm going to strive and fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that in the closing moments of this time, we will not just listen to your word, but we would let it change the way that we live. I pray that our faith will be practiced, that we would have a solid faith and a firm faith. And so I pray that you'll have your way in each heart during this invitation time. And may we see changes from having been in your word and having our hearts opened by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.